Hello and welcome to the BICOM podcast. My name is Samuel Nerding. I'm the Research Associate for BICOM. And in today's episode, I'm joined with our Jerusalem-based director, Richard Pater, to discuss how the new Israeli government is holding up. Richard, let's start with the overall picture. It's been a little shaky start, but the new government is still standing after about five weeks in power. How have you assessed the government's ability to, to compromise and reach agreement since its establishment? And, and how well do you think this bodes for the government's ability over the coming weeks and months ahead? Okay, thanks, Sam. Well, to describe it as a little shaky, I think is a nice British uh, understatement. Um, it's, been, it's been incredibly shaky, even though it's only been, only been a month. And it's shakier as a result of kind of the two, uh, the uniqueness, I suppose, of this government. First of all, any government which is based on a 61-59, or in fact, as the vote turned out, a 60-59 split, and based out of kind of eight ideologically diverse composite parties, this was always going to be very tricky. Compounded on that is that this government didn't have a single day of grace um, coming in. Lots of new governments, you know, would have hoped for a period of, of opening and transition, and they didn't get any of that both in the sense of a very combative opposition, which we can talk about as well in, in a minute, but also of the, uh, of the actual issues on the agenda. If one goes back, I mean, just to name, I suppose, two, two or three issues that started this, uh, this government's term, they had the March of Flags, which was postponed because of the conflict in Gaza, of the, the right wing marching throughout the old city of Jerusalem. They had the issue of the illegal outpost, which had been set up super quickly in uh, Eviatar near uh, the, the, uh, the Tapuach uh, junction in the, in the West Bank. Um, and, and other issues obviously also compounded by the, uh, the, the, the latest variant of the, uh, of the coronavirus and, and, and that issue also kind of affecting everyone worldwide, but also affecting Israel, which obviously had led the way on the, on the, uh, on the vaccines, but is now also suffering as a, as a, as a, as a result of this variant. So all of that has come together and there are lots of other issues we can explore as well. But bottom line, so far the government is holding on. And, uh, and as I said, it's only been, it's only been a month, but, uh, but it's, it's, it's shaky and it's seen already a great deal of challenges, but uh, this is where we are at the moment. Absolutely. You mentioned obviously some of the challenges that the government or the previous government kind of left behind. Um, you said also, you, you described the, opposition as combative and, and I think it's, it's spot on. Um, it has also actually opposition remained like the government, it's remained united this time behind opposition leader Benjamin Netanyahu um, and it has as you said been kind of pretty unprecedented in terms of its behaviour. Um, perhaps you could kind of sum up for us some of the things that the opposition has been doing or is doing that is making life um, for this government um, very difficult. So what's, we, we've, we've seen, a, I think there are two um, kind of key behavioural um, trends of the opposition. The first of all is to filibuster literally every single vote. That for the last few weeks, the Knesset has been running up right through the night um, in kind of the uh, burning the midnight oil of disputing every single vote that, uh, that comes up. And when you have such, as I said before, such a small wafer thin majority, one needs every vote. So, for example, when a member of the uh, of, of the governing coalition party um, 
test positive for the coronavirus and is therefore unable to come to, to a vote, then the, then the coalition need to pull the issue from the agenda because they just, that one vote will be the deciding factor of whether it gets, uh, it gets through or not. So they've been very effectively using um, the, the filibuster. They've also been protesting that one of the procedural issues is, a, as well as the main chamber, is to set up the Knesset uh, committees um, that look into various, uh, various issues and oversight of the government. And they've been foot dra foot dragging their feet and, and, delaying, and delaying the formation of these, these, these committees, which is kind of a, a, uh, an essential part of parliamentary work. And by the way, in return, what the government has now done is break slightly convention. And as opposed to reflecting the true wafer thin majority that they have in the Knesset, have given themselves in some of these committees a, a two seat advantage on the vote to allow them to get things through the committee, which has also been questioned and in terms of the, uh, the democratic nature of the system, but they're also kind of pushing back and not playing by the rules. But I just wanna make another, um, I, I suppose, a distinction that whilst the Knesset seems to be um, log jammed and, and, and a, a source of real tension, at the same time, the, uh, the, the, the government was able to pass uh, a couple of instructive laws, one in particular, an expanded version of the Norwegian law, which basically means that when a minister um, takes over the, a, a cabinet portfolio, they officially resign from the Knesset and someone else further down on their list replaces them. And that's alleviated the pressure of the same ministers having to turn up for these uh, through the night filibustering sessions. And so you have a situation where the ministers themselves and, and rightly so are able to kind of to get to grips after a month with their with their ministries. A lot of them have appointed new um, director generals in their ministries. A lot of women actually appointed and promoted um, for the first time in an unprecedented level. And so there is hope that the actual functioning of the government is actually starting off on quite a good footing, whilst the Knesset itself is the scene of the uh, of the conflict and the tension and the real challenge, which is kind of gripping Israeli democracy. Yeah, fascinating stuff. And um, one of the things which I read uh, today was that the um, so many of the of the new government and its and its MKs and the coalition parties, a lot of them are actually like really kind of new to the Knesset and to its procedures. So. How much do you think that is having an, an impact on, on how well the government is trying to pass kind of co coalition laws and it's obviously failing to do so? Well, we saw one, uh, one in talking about new to the job, we've got a, a new Speaker of the House, uh, Mickey mm. Levy, who's actually a relatively uh, experienced uh, politician. He's been an MK since Yeshatid were founded in 2013. Um, but last week on one of the votes, um, basically to change the makeup of the uh, of the rabbinical courts and to try and take away the, um, the monopoly that the ultra-Orthodox had. After an all-night session, the vote was tied. And when it came to the, uh, the Knesset speaker to cast the vote, he actually voted the wrong way um, by accident um, and then tried to, uh, tried to reverse it, but clarified from the Knesset's legal advisor that, one, that even, even the speaker, once he's voted, it cannot, be, uh, can, cannot re -vote and call a, and, and call a re-vote, even though he admitted he had made a mistake. So that now has to kind of wait until it can return to the legislative agenda. So that's just one kind of small, slightly amusing, amusing example um, of, of kind of the operating in the, in the Knesset. There was also fantastic uh, political theatre last, last week when the uh, opposition collected the requisite 40 signatures to have a formal vote of, uh, of no confidence. And by the way, this is another one of the, I suppose, the paradoxes of this latest uh, 
feuding within the Knesset, that they called a vote of no confidence, claiming that the new government has, uh, has, has, has been a failure in uh, monitoring the, the, uh, the incoming arrivals at Ben Gurion Airport and the spread of the coronavirus. And of course, this is one of the charges that was laid at the last government that Netanyahu was in charge of through the last year of, of allowing how can a country which is basically an island state in the sense that Ben Gurion Airport is the only entrance and exit, mm -hmm. how can it be to have to not have proper checks and efficient uh, uh, efficient testing system at the airport? And here we have two weeks into the new government that it's the opposition blaming the new government for this uh, for this failure. Um, so that irony wasn't lost on some. And there are other there are other examples also of the, the, the coalition having supported one principled issue when in government and now taking the opposite position just to embarrass and expose the government um, for holding, uh, holding similar views. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you mentioned there that obviously the government has, has precious kind of little wiggle room kind of on, on, on bills going forward. And, and whilst it can, it can afford a maybe a, a failure to kind of pass on the laws it's done, it can't afford a failure when it comes to passing the state budget. And I believe that there's kind of maybe two weeks left until it requires like a cabinet vote um, for, for the budget. Um, how do you rate the kind of government's chances when it comes to passing the, the state budget? So first of all, you're absolutely right. I mean, the state budget is the crucial issue. I mean, I mean as you know, by, by, by Israeli law, if a government doesn't succeed in passing, passing a budget, then it automatically triggers new elections. So the, the, stakes, are, the stakes are particularly high. The stakes are even further and compounded by the fact that this was the failure of the previous three governments not to pass a budget and that Israel hasn't had a, a working budget since March, hasn't, hasn't last passed a budget since March 2018, I think, um, which is quite unbelievable. Also, when you take into, take into consideration the huge economic uh, weight that the state has to take on with, uh, with, with everything over the last year of the, the in, within the pandemic. Um, so it's absolutely crucial that the government does pass a, a budget and brings back some stability and understanding for the uh, for, for the whole country. Um, you're absolutely well, you're right that the, that the the deadline now is very tight. They actually passed a they managed to pass a bill that extends the deadline, so they have until November. But we have when you're talking about the next um, few weeks, that uh, in the first week of uh, of August, the Knesset then goes into recess, um, and so there's that time. Um, to, to, to bring it to bring it to formulation. I don't think it's going to happen by then. I think they've already clarified that even within recess, some of these Knesset committees, if they get formed, will then be able to meet even whilst the Knesset is in recess. So it's really a fight against the, against the clock. And then also about managing expectations and the demands of all the uh, of, of all the composite parts of the uh, of the coalition that everyone has something to show for their constituency that they are in the they have now the seat at the table and they have access to the budget and then can deliver for their for their people. Um, further, kind of compounding this is the the commitment that the uh, the uh, finance minister has made. The this stage in the cycle, they don't intend to raise taxes. I mean, that must be on the agenda. And I suppose there are these there are governments all over the world that are having to balance this of how do you encourage the growth after such a period of stagnation because of the the pandemic um, without without raising taxes. So that's also also going to be a challenge for this uh, for this new budget. Absolutely. Uh you mentioned earlier that an irony that the opposition have when they call for no confidence votes. Another kind of, I suppose, it could be an irony for, for BB is that there's this kind of consensus emerging in Israel now in the political chambers of, of Knesset. And it goes like this. It's like, 
the current government is kind of really diverse, um, but it will remain in power as long as Netanyahu continues to lead up the opposition. It's what brought them together and, it, and Netanyahu is like the glue. And then obviously as soon as he retires, there's this idea that there'll be a new battle for succession in the Likud. And once the Likud elects a new leader, Prime Minister Naftali Bennett can disband the government and he can form a cleaner, fresher right-wing government with maybe the Haradim, um, maybe Saar, maybe Gantz would even join. Do, do you think this consensus is is kind of legit? Do you think it can hold up? And and do you think if this is the case, could Lapid be kind of become the new Gantz that suffered under the last previous government? So this is a very, very interesting question. And it was actually, it came up just last week in the Knesset. If you remember, if we get, if we go back to the uh, formation of this government, it was basically built on the same concept, broadly speaking, that the Netanyahu Gantz um, unity government was formed in the, and this title of uh, alternate prime minister, which is now the role of Lapid. One of the loopholes that this new government um, was intending to close was the idea that if the government falls, then, then whoever brought down the government wouldn't be able to form an alternative um, coalition without going to elections. Um, and, and in the end, Lapid decided to drop this clause. Um, so the scenario that you suggest that in a post-Netanyahu world that uh, Bennett could reorientate himself, use a Likud under a different leadership and form a right-wing government is absolutely theoretically, theoretically now possible. Um, but, uh, to, but Lapid's response to that was kind of, um, he was quite uh, philosophical about it and said that uh, if they want to do that, then all they'd have to do afterwards is still break the government and then uh, and then hold another vote to uh, to rechange the law. So right. that even passing that loophole wouldn't really help at this time. But more importantly, um, Lapid wants to emphasize that this government, unlike previous governments of the last decade or so, is based on genuine trust and goodwill. And without that trust and understanding, it's going it's going nowhere fast anyway. So he wants to believe that even without uh, cutting this uh, this loophole, that there is enough good faith amongst the partners that they can all prove their worth um, and therefore keep it going. Um, just two other points on that. First of all, I think this is this remains a deeply theoretical question because right now Netanyahu isn't going anywhere. Um, but it does raise a real challenge that in this scenario, further along the line, Bennett, who has taken so much criticism from his own kind of natural constituency, or at least the, the Likud are, are, are running with this line that he has kind of uh, um, deserted his, his electorate by going with the, the centrists as opposed to staying truly with his ideological right-wing partners. There is a scenario that says, how does Bennett, if he doesn't see, if he, if he reads the, the polls the same way that he's lost his constituency, one way to kind of to, to regain the trust of the right is basically to go with this maneuver further along the lines and, and join a right-wing coalition with the Likud. So, so Bennett himself will be face, could potentially face real pressure to do that maneuver that you described. And then it's a question for him whether he wants to stay with his gentleman agreement and stay in good faith with Lapid, or whether he wants to uh, rehabilitate himself with the right and, and go with them. So it's gonna be very interesting to see that. Absolutely. I'm actually, you feel like you get, you get a bit sick of talking about government formations over the last kind of 18 months of, of what could happen. Um, <laughs> but there was one thing which, I, which um, has been kind of going around on the media and it's about kind of BB potentially offering Gantz or I think um, I look at Nick came or I look at Minister came out and said that Gantz could be Prime Minister tomorrow. And, and it's the idea that you know, BB could actually offer Gantz a new rotation um, agreement and Gantz could leave. I mean, I, I assume that's just kind of 
gibberish and it's not really going to happen. And Gantz has probably wised up now to BB's kind of uh, overtures. But there was an interest for that. I, correct me if I'm wrong, but Gantz is still technically a, an MK. He didn't actually resign under the Norwegian law. So it could that could actually still happen in the next however many months before the budget. I mean, it remains there in theory. Again, I mean, I, the, the, that uh, Benny Gantz gave an interview on the weekend uh, um, news where he, where he wasn't, he didn't deny it perhaps as strongly um, as he could have done. And I think that's partly a power play to keep people, get people guessing, but he did deny it. And I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a realistic scenario. I think, listen, I think had he been, had he been given any other position other than defense minister, then the, the bad blood that kind of existed that was simmering between him and his former partners um, could have raised itself. But I think in the current context, whilst he's being consulted, whilst he's being respected, and whilst he's part of the kind of the senior leadership of this new, of this new broad coalition, I can't see him, uh, I can't see him bailing on that. Perfect. Um, there's a kind of fascinating battle developing between the only Arab Islamist party in the coalition, the United Arab List, and then the opposition um, Arab joint list. Can you kind of explain how the joint list in opposition is trying to kind of delegitimize the, the United Arab list? Shouldn't it be trying to maybe work with its kind of Arab coalition partner to try and get better policies for the Arab sector? Um, it's a nice question. I mean, I think, listen, I don't think there are any separate standards for the Arab politicians as it is for the, uh, for the, for the uh, Jewish uh, um, politicians. They're both, they're both kind of everyone's playing both a game on, on, on a couple of levels. On one level, it's kind of it's pure politics and it's about with the, the factionalism of whether you're part of the coalition or government and where you have your vested interest to vote uh, and or kind of ide ideological core values which you just can't can't break. But we've seen both sides basically go against them. And for, I'll give you two examples. One was the famous vote a couple of weeks ago that the government lost about uh, renewing the ordinance against the reunification of Palestinians um, married to, uh, to, to, to Israelis. And that kind of against their, their core beliefs, the, uh, the United Arab List, part of the coalition, voted with the coalition on that. In fact, actually, they split the vote and two voted for and two, and two abstained, as they had agreed within the coalition, coalition agreement. And then you have a scenario where the opposition under, under Netanyahu deliberately brought a vote to set up a commission of inquiry into the level of, of crime and, uh, and violence in the Arab sector. Again, a key issue for the, uh, for the United Arab List. But then again, the Arab, United Arab List voted against it because they had agreed that they would, they, they would oppose every initiative within the opposition. So you've got two examples there of going against their beliefs, but with their with their with, with their coalition. Now there, there are similar similar cases within the, uh, the the joint list as well that find themselves in this ridiculous situation of voting alongside, <coughs> excuse me, the Likud and the and the and the Zion, and the hard Zionist right as well in an effort to bring down the government. But having said all that, there is one clear issue which the joint list has accepted but they understand that when it comes to the passing of the budget, that this government is the lesser of two evils and that they, the last thing they want is to be able to, to facilitate um, the, the Likud and Netanyahu returning to power so quickly. So, and they also have a second interest that if the United Arab List are able to bring budgets to the, to the Israeli Arab communities and to invest in infrastructure and jobs and to fight crime, et cetera, all the things that are shared amongst both 
of the Arab parties and the opposition and the go and the government, then on these kind of high high minded principles, the the joint list have already said that they would consider giving the backing to this government in order to help and facilitate past the government. Um, and they're not doing that just for altruistic reasons. As I said they're doing it because it will have a genuine um, impact and help their communities. And at the same time, they can then try and even though not being part of the government, take the credit for some of this in terms of the bringing of the budget um, and, and, and at least share some of the credit with the, uh, with, with the United Arab List as well, or at least that's how they will want to project it to their constituency. <laughs> it's definitely a um, interesting battle to, to keep an eye on. One of the uh, one of the initiatives that this this new government is clearly undertaking is to renew its diplomatic ties with maybe old allies with whom the kind of the previous government might have often overlooked, such as Democrats in the US, Western European countries like Germany and France, and, and particularly Jordan. How much do you think Israel needed this public orientation to its foreign policy agenda? And, and, and I was wondering kind of how much does kind of what people say about Israel outside the country have an impact on how the people in Israel think? Okay, well, I think there's, there's two, two separate questions there. They're both, uh, they're, they're both interesting. Um, in, in, to answer the second one first, I mean, there is a classic quote from uh, uh, David Ben-Gurion, Israel's first prime minister, that basically said, it doesn't matter what the world say, it's what, it's what we as Israelis, as Jews, as Zionists, it's what we do that matters. Um, and that was kind of seen at the time as kind of the a classic Zionist response of taking taking ownership, taking control and, uh, and, uh, and, being, and being in charge of one's destiny and one's power to control things. Now, I think fast forward, fast forward kind of to 2021, the country is basically split on the matter. Um, they're split in, in two ways. First of all, this remains kind of a huge ideological friction point within Israeli society. Is it really true that what the world says doesn't matter? Because um, another side of, of Zionism is about the, the, uh, the, the Jewish state entering into the family of nations and therefore being accepted in the, in the truest sense. And so it does matter if there is, if there is delegitimization of Israel, then it, then it matters. It kind of affects kind of Israel's core status in these things. And other, the other side will say, no, it doesn't matter. It's still the, 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 the Ben-Gurion principle holds and it's what we do and, uh, and forget about the outside world. They're, they're, they're full of anti-Semites anyway. Um, the second divide, kind of how Israelis look at it, is along the kind of crude political divide. But those that are still supportive of, of Netanyahu and his, and his decade or so in power will point to the very real substantial successes that, that he had. Obviously, the, the Abraham Accords reaching out to kind of uh, a third tier of countries, um, the BRIC countries in particular in India and, uh, and, and, and Brazil, Eastern European countries. And so there were, there were still um, diplomatic successes, even within the, the, the Netanyahu era. On the other side, representing kind of this new government is exactly those groups that you've just highlighted, that uh, he was perhaps, uh, he, Netanyahu could be accused of being negligent towards the, uh, let's say the soft European left, um, the, Dem the Democrats, and that the tone of the conversation will now change to kind of bring Israel back in to the family of nations where they actually want to be. And that's primarily amongst, as I said, the soft European left and, uh, and, 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 the, and the US, the Democratic, the Democratic Party and, and other kind of liberal audiences that this government is going to be far more attuned to speaking their, to speaking their language. 
Fascinating. Uh, maybe we can just end on on a bit more kind of looking ahead and maybe you can just highlight for our readers and our listeners kind of what other challenges do you think kind of might pop up over the next kind of few weeks and months that could really kind of destabilise the coalition? So what kind of red flags should um, people be looking at if they want to kind of see how, how stable this government is and, and, and can be? Um, well, as, I think as we've seen from the first month, even, even kind of innocuous issues on the surface will have the ability to embarrass the new government and to see their, their agenda um, put back kind of another example was the idea that one of the uh, coalition members wanted to put forward a bill to decriminalize um, um, recreational use of marijuana and then when they came across that the, uh, the United Arab List had an, a, a religious objection to that within kind of the name of conservative Islam they had to uh, to, to postpone that vote um, and, and, and they'll see if it gets uh, tabled later. So there are lots of these minor issues which still because of that, that tiny majority that we spoke about at the beginning can cause embarrassment and discomfort for the government, but they're unlikely to bring the government down because what you need to do to bring it down is to have a, apart from not passing a budget, is to have a constructive majority of someone of, of another um, candidate being able to present a majority, which is to your question you asked earlier, about uh, Benny Gantz, which I think is not uh, not realistic. Um, in terms of kind of the big substantial issues, there are still there are still other. Although this government is going to prioritise the practical issues and improving things for for as many regular Israelis as possible, and avoid the uh, controversial ideological issues, as we've seen just this week, issues within the Palestinian arena will come up. The question would be, I mean, there was a, the, traditionally one was speaking when one talks about another another round of violence in Gaza or, or in the West Bank with this current government. One just presumed that when it came to kind of life and death issues, the, the, the government would receive the support from the, uh, from, the, from, from the opposition as well. I think we have to say that a month in, we've proven that no, none of that can be taken for granted for anymore. And so a potential conflict could could lead to a, a political uh, a political crisis as well. Should, should we should be ever ever wary of uh, of, of of that scenario? Um, there are all sorts of other issues. I mean, we mentioned that the kind of the, the failed vote to uh, to change the makeup of the rabbinate. It depends kind of just how how much this government of change does really want to change things on the issues of religion and state, and how that will also affect. Um, religious members of the coalition, knowing that the ultra orthodox are going to be so so unhappy about that, we saw an emergence of that also within budgetary issues as well. So there are so many but not potential banana skins that can cause a problem for this government. And just as I mentioned, the the spirit in which this government was formed, which was the idea of compromise and cohesion and working for a common good and putting egos aside, one can only hope for the sake of this government's longevity that these kind of um, values and, and principles will will ride out, and they will be able to find creative solutions to some of these quite diverse issues. Absolutely, Rich, we covered a lot there, so thank you so much. As always, you have great insights into into domestic Israeli politics. So thank you for your time, and we look forward to everyone come back to our um, our next podcast. Thanks, Sam. Thank you.